Hi, and thanks for listening in to Welcome to Antifascism, a Substack podcast and blog that examines why liberal nations and people were seduced by fascist ideas over the last decade. I'm one of your hosts, Alastair Cannon, and this is the first in a series of interviews with writers, scholars, activists, and thinkers whose work presents a fresh, alternative perspective on contemporary fascism and right-wing authoritarianism. I'm here today with Jacob Smith, a friend of mine who recently completed an MA in Critical and Cultural Studies at Birkbeck, University of London. Jacob and I met in June last year at the London Critical Theory Summer School, where we attended seminars with other students who are concerned with the same issues as us. Why does contemporary life feel so unstable? Why does politics now feel so threatening and incomprehensible? How can we explain our present moment and work toward a more hopeful future? What might a better alternative look like? For his MA thesis, Jacob researched the connections between far-right online subcultures, Trumpism, and the offline event of the riot at the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. His work combines politics with thinking about media technologies and affects, and it was fascinating to hear his perspective on right-wing politics today. I hope you enjoy the conversation that follows, and remember to subscribe on Spotify and Substack so you can get our new posts, listen to our audio episodes, and hear our interviews as they become available. Okay, so I'm here with Jacob Smith uh, today. Um, yeah, how are you going, Jacob? Are you good? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on. How are you uh, doing? Yeah, I'm great. Yeah, it's really good to have you here, and I'm excited to talk through all your work. Okay, so... Um, Let's get into it. Fantastic. Um, all right, to start, so we'll open with the end of your thesis, Trump's mugshot. In your work, the discourse and activity around this mugshot becomes a device you use to draw together your thinking on politics, internet media, and irony, things that all meet in the meme format. Can you talk us through this moment? What does it tell us about Trumpism? And what do you think it says about the political power of memes? I like that we're starting at the end. It's sort of very sort of fascist temporality. Actually, <laughs> just sort of like yeah, bring right. it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the mugshot incident happened. I think as I as I was actually finishing up my thesis, which was very convenient. Um, so Trump's arrested in. Well, he's not arrested. He sort of hands himself over to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office in Georgia, and he's charged on thirteen counts of trying to overturn the election in twenty twenty. Only thirteen, yeah, 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 just just thirteen. <laughs> We're sort of one of many. Yeah, in <laughs> um, sort of as soon as the mugshot is released, it's just it's immediately memed. Um, it's sort of it turns up in a bunch of kind of various guises. You know, Trump is an example of the Kubrick stare. Trump is, you know, a non-binary barista or something that I saw. Trump is, uh, you know, trying to trying to flirt with you from across the bar. <laughs> um, so what what you have is kind of a process whereby something that is a deeply political moment. Um, this is like an ex-president of the United States. He's just been arrested. Um, is completely emptied of that actual political sort of substance. Um, so the implications of it are really serious, and the speed with which that import the political importance is kind of bottomed out, so to speak. Um, is literally just down to how the digital kind of technology work. And while, you know, it's funny, 
it also has actual political consequences. So within three days of the release of Trump's mugshot, the, his campaign raised about $7 million. Um, part of that saw $4.18 million raised within 24 hours, which is the biggest contribution to his campaign to date. I'm not sure whether that's his 2020 campaign or his 2016 campaign or both. Um, and the sort of the root of this is an idea among the Republicans that one should, quote, never surrender. So there's lots of like mugs and bumper stickers with that mug shot on with never surrender emblazoned underneath it. Yeah. Trump surrendered himself to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office um, in order for that mugshot to be taken. So I think I think the kind of main point here is how the mugshot was seen amongst Trump's base and the actual political consequences of its online circulation. And I think that's what kind of makes it quite difficult for the liberal kind of classes to combat Trump in that the actual coherent politics underneath Trumpism isn't particularly there. It's all about kind of surface level imagery and how that imagery could be leveraged to produce some sort of politics. I actually would, would sort of say it's, it's anti-political in that way. Um, so yeah, as I said, it's kind of about surface level imagery and the circulation, the speed with which a meme is able to repeat itself and be capitalized upon is kind of the political power of the meme, I think. Um, and it's 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 it's, it's politically useful actually, particularly to sort of like more sort of fascistically inclined politics, in that it can circumnavigate that need for kind of a coherent political project, um, and it just kind of becomes a vague kind of sloganeering, and um, yeah, as I said, just kind of like links that are made on a complete surface level. All right, there's so much yeah. on that answer. That was, that was yeah, fantastic. Sorry, Thank yeah. you. No, 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 that's great. Yeah, it's such a rich response to that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I think the theme that comes out for me there is just the sheer level of ambivalence yeah. here. So yeah. at once there's a total hollowing out of the political content, like a yeah. disemboweling of the political with the memes, yeah. but at the same time a reinstitution of it where you bring it back in the form of you know the campaign donations and people rally, rallying around yeah. it and saying never surrender and so on. Exactly. And so yeah, it's a really fascinating kind of moment that's both political and anti-political yeah, at the same exactly. time. And the question is, is does that tell us that there's some sort of new form of politics emerging where where the anti-political becomes political or is it something else entirely, do you think? I do think that that, that, that combination is something that's quite tricky to kind of think through because an actual political consequence for something that's not actually political is difficult to kind of pass out. I do think there's... there's I'm not sure whether it's, it's, it's a new form of politics or... We've kind of seen this trend before when it comes to feeling. Um, I think that affect and feeling have always been kind of a huge part of politics and it's been able to sort of circumnavigate certain logical inconsistencies within um, a political kind of base to begin with, something like Brexit, um, which is positioned as trying to, I don't know, kind of help the working man and improve the economy and all of this when all of the statistics and the actual serious adults in the room are saying that that isn't going to happen. And yet Brexit still happened along those lines. Um, I think what it mainly speaks to is a disengagement of the kind of voter base from political information in general and more turning towards their own, their, their feelings in this kind of turn towards kind of affect. Um, 
I'm not sure. I, I, I'm inclined to say that it is a new kind of politics, but making those kind of grand statements yeah, <laughs> feels, yeah, quite, yeah. feels quite <laughs> intense. But I'm definitely reminded of that Balibar thing at the Critical Theory Summer School where he's talking about a need for a new politics. Obviously, it's kind of, his, his logic is a little bit different because he's talking about these massive, big issues that need to be solved. But a part of the Balibar thing was how the digital is changing certain political logics. Mm. So I do think if you're going to seriously kind of try and combat this what you want to call it kind of right-wing populism or fascism or whatever you do have to really think about why the people are voting for it beyond any sort of coherent politics and more about the feeling that those people sort of like get at i think excellent yeah Um, so to put put it a bit crudely so when we're thinking about affect and politics we're mm. thinking about things like you know, um, the desire to feel good or to yeah. feel powerful, to feel uh, proud or um, even to feel alive or to yeah. feel nothing. All these sorts of desires and people to feel something and to feel, I don't know, energy yeah. and emotion moving through the body and giving you some sort of payoff with that. That's what this is all about, yeah. isn't it? And um, instead of, you know, forwarding a coherent and maybe what we might say, rational plan for the future. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, maybe some, you know, what Keynesian politics uh, yeah. politics aspires to, for example. Um, I I kind of wonder if these right-wing movements are all just about producing these really intense feelings for people who, for whatever reason, socially, politically, and historically need to feel those feelings yeah. at this moment. Yeah. And how much they sort of, they plug into feelings that are actually, like, real, right? Like, if you're a Trump voter, there's a chance that you're of a kind of demographic and class that one could say has been sort of forgotten in the sense, sort of rural, white, um, relatively sort of low economic status. And I think that kind of sense of betrayal, you know, does have its roots in something that is real, but it's often leveraged by someone like Trump who directs that feeling towards because someone like Trump is kind of what's what's he's part of the problem but if you can turn around and say it's actually it's immigrants or whatever then you can use that as a actually politically powerful tool when there's not actually much sense behind it at all exactly yeah Yeah. so it's funny because I think the way we might think about the relationship between politics and affect is that you have these emotions and stuff Mm. and political actors come along and co-opt the emotions and direct them towards their own political ends but from the perspective of a follower of one of these movements um their emotions are definitely being funneled into yeah. some sort of ideological position, but that ideological position still remains subordinate to affect to some yeah. extent because the yeah. goal for them is to feel something. Exactly. Um, so yeah, there's this really confusing yeah. sort of entwinement of the two of them that I think is really we really need to think through at this yeah, point yeah, in sure. time. Yeah, I think like a really extreme version of it is like QAnon, right? Where mm-hmm. like <laughs> QAnon logically <laughs> try and follow the thing is quite yeah. difficult. Yeah. You know, you really need like a you need a lot of time, <laughs> lots of note taking. Lots of time because, we don't have. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because obviously <laughs> QAnon makes no sense. Yeah, but you know, it makes you feel like makes you feel like you know these feelings that you have are legitimate and that um you can try and figure it out and again that kind of like self-serving almost like narcissistic element of like i can be the one to solve this problem and Mm. these really kind of convoluted things when really it's obviously it's not that (laughs) Um, it's that kind of tendency that is quite concurrent with something like trumpism in general which i think is why it's based sort of like and QAnon really kind of combined beyond beyond even the obvious thing of like Trump is this kind of central like hero of QAnon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a logic to Trumpism in general and QAnon specifically that's kind of the same. I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna outline that logic just briefly? Uh, yeah. Sure. I think that um, 
the way that the way that I thought it through was through the kind of meme form, actually, um, where digital discourse in general can be seen. The logic of it can be seen quite saliently within a meme. So, um, trying to explain this in as simple terms as I can. So, going so I talk about the mugshot and the Kubrick stare, right? So, the Kubrick stare is this kind of obvious, not obvious. It's quite a sort of niche filmic technique that Stanley Kubrick uses. Um, and it's kind of bringing it together with the mugshot. Um, in order to understand why that meme is funny, you need to have these kind of like specific things already in mind. What I'm trying to say is that a, a meme is quite referential and a meme operates by kind of making like links. It grabs stuff from the internet of things and kind of recasts them to create content really. And the deeper that you go into these kind of online subcultures like QAnon, the more grabby that um, kind of dynamic is to the point where it becomes quite impenetrable even for people that are kind of within that movement a lot of the memes that I wrote about in the thesis would have taken me like paragraphs to explain in terms of what their representational, rep- representational con- content was referring to but that's because it's not the point the point of a meme is the reference itself the process by which things are grabbed and kind of smushed together really um so, like, the, the the spicier memes I found, again, would have taken, like, paragraphs to explain. Um, and that's because they don't really function with a corollary of explanation. It's literally all about vibes. <laughs> um, I have a good quote from Robert Topinka here, who supervised my project. He writes about memes and the far right and these online subcultures. And this is about the OK, you know, the OK symbol. Oh, yeah, right? with the, the, fingers? the white, yeah, 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 the white nationalist symbol. Uh, quote, alt-right adherents repeatedly posted images of themselves making the OK hand gesture so that liberal critics would label it as a white nationalist symbol and tie themselves in knots by explaining how a common gesture represents white nationalism. The, ho- the OK hand gesture is not a white nationalist symbol. It has no content, but it is a contribution. And as such, it coordinates white nationalist affect. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. I feel like um, that's very similar to the way the Nazis might have used the swastika or something. Exactly, right? Right. It, it has yeah. absolutely nothing to do with, you know, thousand year yeah. Reichs or German dominance or blood and soil, really. Yeah. But they take this thing and then fill it with a content that doesn't possess. Exactly. Um, obviously, a different function to the OK symbol for the yeah. Nazis versus white nationalists, but it's almost like an appropriation of a symbol and filling it with something yeah. in order... Here it's almost just like trolling. It is, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's a similar thing with like QAnon, right? Is that like a lot of theory about QAnon and a lot of the origins of it, people hypothesized that it was a LARP, so a live action role play that was originally kind of set up on, I think, 8chan or something as a as a troll, literally. And it just snowballed mm-hmm. because it was not about the representational content. It is literally just about the affect and it's the, the gesture of QAnon itself. Um, so like with Trumpism, yeah, it's not necessarily about... The representational politics, obviously that's a part of it, but a massive, arguably bigger part of it is about that coordination of of affect. Um, yeah, that's yeah. great. With the live action role playing example, mm. so I feel like the idea of acting is maybe perhaps pretty helpful here because the actor is someone that takes, say, a pre existing character or a script or something and brings their own performance yeah. to it. So they animate it with life and so on. But what the actor gets out of it themselves and what it produces in the person that witnesses the acting, you know, there's a, there's a very, very powerful affective mm. um, effect, I think on the people who act and who witness the acting. I think that's what we're getting at here is that it's not the acting itself or the character that's played that's the central thing, but it's the feeling that results from it. Yeah. And I think there's... 
interesting point about like performance. So this is like incredibly anecdotal, but I've been, as we've been talking about, I've been like doing job interviews this week and a lot of the more kind of like corporate, corporate type jobs where I really have to put on a kind of like performative corporate Jacob thing. I sat through so many of these interviews that by the end of being actually offered the job, even though I did not want the job, I'm not a corporate guy. My my partner was having to talk me down from like accepting the job because she was like, you're not actually this. It's like you've, you've consumed so much of the Kool-Aid that you're like convinced that you can do this job. Whereas yeah. if you actually started doing it, dude, you'd be so depressed. Yeah. In like three months, I was like, yeah. okay, you're right. <laughs> big, big breath, yeah. But it's that similar thing. It's like, even if you don't really necessarily mean it, it's just by like performing it and saying it and repeating it over and over again. You'll be, it's like you start to just fall into this rhythm of it, it, it does slowly kind of become you. Yes. Um, yeah. No, like, um, one thing, um, that comes to mind there is, um, so we're doing David Bowie yeah, as part of this nice. podcast. And, um, repeatedly in the early seventies, he had this horrible sort of experience where he would play these characters and the characters would consume him. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, basically what we're arguing is that there's a certain, weakness in the self there mm. that um acting both supplements but also um maybe sabotage as well yeah. um makes more difficult so you know when he did the man who fell to earth he played a character called thomas newton i think and yeah when he did that um he said he was newton for six months after he finished the role and he couldn't stop acting in this yeah. alienated isolated um kind of fucked up way yeah. basically yeah you know? and um I, I wonder if it's the same with these trump people it's like um, they start acting a role because it feels good for them, but then that mm. alters them and alters their material reality so that they no, almost in a sense can't stop it. With your work on internet media mm. and political violence, so you focus particularly on the January 6th yeah. riots. And so could you tell us a little bit about the lead up to the day, mm. the event itself, the aftermath, and how uh, internet media contributed to that violence? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think a lot, a lot of what we're talking about is kind of like the like anti-political and that kind of thing. Obviously, that doesn't tell the whole story. January 6th is the result of a lot of deliberate political positions, that, political decisions, I mean, that, 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 that sort of happened way before 2020 itself, but all the way back to 2016. So um, all the Trumps kind of talk about um, election fraud and Democrats like bussing in uh, migrants to illegally vote, that starts to happen in 2016. So it already starts to kind of cast doubt on any sort of um, Democrat support. And this slowly kind of like snowballs and snowballs. Um, the pandemic happens, which means that Biden's going to probably get more mail-in voting, which statistically skews towards the Democrats um, and to kind of take advantage of this. Um, Trump leverages something called the red mirage which is what news outlets were reporting they predicted was going to happen and there's what happened on the night is that um a big republican initial sway you know texas goes to the republicans all these kind of bigger states uh it looks like trump's going to really sweep and then the mail-in ballots start to be counted because they get counted later and they skew democrat and all of a sudden blue 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 um, and in that kind of confusion where it looks like the Republicans have literally kind of managed to somehow snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, Trump goes and says, I've won. <laughs> he uses a very, it's a very deliberate decision and people were predicting that he'd do that even within his own team. I think, um, Steve Bannon said he's definitely going to do this. Yeah. And he, right, go, okay. he goes, he goes and, and does it. Um, and as Trump's kind of made the way that Trump kind of spreads his misinformation is through social media. Uh, he basically just tweets out a lot, kind of being like, you know, these, this crazy mass sending of ballots has to end. Um, the, the foreigners are interfering in our election, you know, stop this election mayhem, all this kind of stuff. 
Um, so post-election night, it's all kind of chaos in Trump town. Um, so there's loads of heated conversations about Trump should concede. He's saying he shouldn't concede. He should keep pushing this kind of like narrative because Trump believes it. I think, um, he tries to pressure like the attorney general to like stop the count <laughs> and with the embargo is like, no, <laughs> and then Trump's like, you're fired. Yeah. It's like that moment yeah. in COVID where it was like, I just told him to stop counting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Literally. He's like, just make it real. Um, and so basically it's, it's chaos and all the time Trump's kind of firing a lot of the so-called adult I mean part of the Trump campaign can you really call him an adult but you know <laughs> like he's kind of firing the more sensible people like William Barr and at the, uh, in the wings all these kind of acolytes are waiting kind of very ready mm. to all these yes men basically mm-hmm. and that kind of culminates in that really funny Four Seasons incident with Julia oh, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. the wrong part of just the amazing yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic <laughs> that's like a real mask off moment for how demented those people are actually like oh great um so on december the 19th trump sends out a tweet um kind of summoning people to the ellipse which is the kind of gardens outside the white house where there's going to be a rally and he's summoning them on january 6th uh, and he chooses january 6th because that's kind of the be all and end all the democratic process in america because that's mm-hmm. when the election results get certified and then it's like stuck in stone and that's like it so he tweets out on January 19th, oh, December 19th, sorry. That goes out to his base. People like the Proud Boys, militias like the Three Percenters, and then just norm- normal um, Trump supporters retweet, reshare on their social media networks. So it kind of like vibrates out, which is how a lot of just how social media operates, just kind of the vibrations kind of percolate through his base. Um, and by the time January 6th actually rolls around, two important things have happened. The first is that He's exhausted all kind of judicial routes, both legal and illegal, um, to try and overturn the election. And a lawyer called John Eastman has proposed to Trump something called Operation Pence Card, which is a very speculative legal theory that maybe Pence can overturn the election. Mm-hmm. Um, they literally have a meeting in the Oval Office and they really try and pressure Pence. And Pence is just like, no, I'm not going to do it because he knows it's illegal. Um so by the time January 6th rolls around, it's literally like do or die. Like I have to stop the certification. Um, so he has this kind of like big speech. Um, in the lead up, like tens of thousands of people have been sharing this kind of big lie of election fraud. The lie has kind of made itself fact in that base, just kind of through pure repetition, because the algorithm means that you're not going to see the, you're not going to see the evidence to the contrary, the big lie. Mm-hmm. All you're going to see is the big lie. And that's mm-hmm. just repeating and repeating and repeating. Um, so yeah, January 6th rolls around, tens of thousand people turn up and then we kind of saw the rest. Um, so what I found that was interesting in the research kind of leading up to the actual writing of the disc was, um, it was a really big 800 page document, um, produced by the Senate subcommittee about January 6th. And a lot of it mentions social media as a big player, but it doesn't really mention how it treats social media as like kind of an inert vector of communication. Um, when it's not an inert vector, it, it has its own kind of logics to it. Um, and I thought that was an interesting kind of in. So that's how I started writing about the memes, really. But so the flaws in the official account is that, of social yeah, media. Yeah. Yep. And to be fair, that report is fantastic. It's really, really thorough. And it's just really just like straight facts, 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 mm-hmm. facts. It's a really good resource in that way, even if it is quite long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, 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 so in the lead up to the event, social media's influence isn't really felt beyond that sort of tweeting out and the reverberations caused by that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, as I said, it was a bunch of political decisions. But during the event itself, I think social media's influence made itself kind of profoundly 
apparent, um, not only in the kind of symbolism that was present at the event, but I think also the really odd way that it kind of panned out. So they're in there for four hours. They're in this, this seat of power for four hours. And a lot happens, but not much of consequence happens, really. Ashley Babbitt is shot. She's she's this kind of trumper that, that yeah, she's shot inside the Capitol. Um, there's a lot of kind of pushing and pulling sort of in the middle bit of the Capitol, like outside in this kind of like tunnel. Um, but within four hours, they've all left. And the certification that was blocked is then kind of like re-upped. And the same day they certify the results. Uh, I thought that was interesting was that, you know, it was like an in, insane event. So many people were present. And I, it was, if there was a bit more of a coherent political project behind it, it could have been much, much, much worse. Obviously, it was really bad in itself, but it didn't really come across like a premeditated seizure of power in the same way as like an actual coup does. Mm. Um I think there's, there's kind of like a real difference to me with what happens on January 6th and what happens with like actual kind of, not but other, other instances of kind of white supremacist terrorism, like the kind of Lone Wolves and Brevik and Tarrant and Christchurch and that kind of thing. What I'm trying to say is that um, the role of social media is like, is, is incredibly important in the sense that it kind of summoned these people here, but there was a logic also kind of undergirding it that emptied it of that political kind of core, I think, beyond just like a spectacle of violence, really. Um, so yeah, that was quite a long. <laughs> no, no, no <laughs> that, long that's answer, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, um, in your thesis, one of the mm. points you make in reference to all that, so the the underlying logic of the event. So you basically say that January six had the structure of a meme. Yeah. It wasn't. It didn't just produce meme content. It actually was a real time meme, live yeah. action meme. <laughs> meme you know? in real time, so yeah. meme in real time. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So what what does that mean to you exactly? So that that it was a meme. Um, yeah. Sure. Well, I think number one, number one, there was the symbolism of it. I think if anyone alive at the time was watching the news, like looking at the QAnon shaman, felt meme right? Mm. It felt kind of just ridiculous and strange and incredibly esoteric, all of which memes are. But kind of returned to the structure of a meme itself. So as we've said, it's kind of like it's about links and surface level. Um, through which kind of affect is coordinated. There's no like representational core to a meme. And I think we sort of saw this at the Capitol and some of the weird, um, there's, so one of the interesting things, well, one of the quite fruitful things about January 6th is that it, I've never seen an event be so mediated and captured at various perspectives. There's a website called January 6th Evidence, which kind of aggregates all these live streams. Mm-hmm. So, so, so much evidence of really odd things, basically. Um, a good example of which is a, <laughs> I can't believe I wrote my thesis on this, a baked Alaska live stream. <laughs> um, his real name is Antoine Gionnet. I think he's like, I think some, some Canadian in there. Um, so he arrives relatively late on January 6th and he sort of hears that there's violence on the steps of the Capitol and he tries to like rally people around him to go and like, get get involved basically and he sort of starts yelling um it's going down it's, it's a mace frenzy bro like that kind of thing and he's calling everyone a patriot a patriot um but there's like this real delight for kind of violence for violence sake just to sort of go and be involved in the violence so the calling for patriots it signifies kind of collective experience and camaraderie and common political cause but there's a delight that's kind of within within that mace frenzy that locates that camaraderie not necessarily in kind of shared values but just an enjoyment for violence for violence sake so that political kind of patriotic core while present 
is is not actually substantive in any way. It's literally just violence for violence sake. So that kind of like surface level emphasis is what I sort of found at the at the event itself. So it's almost like so there's these desire the desire for violence and the patriotism thing coordinates yeah. this desire amongst people yeah. rather than it being a thing yeah. for which the violence is committed. The, yeah, exactly. The, the literally I think the 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 energy of it is Something's going on at the Capitol. They're macing our patriots. This is sick. <laughs> like, rather than like, oh no, our comrades, you know, we should go and run in and like help them. Yeah, like, sacrifice just, yeah exactly. It's just there's, like... there's no common cause, really. Mm. It's just like, let's just go and like film it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, one thing I just wanted to, um, bring up just mm. for the listeners' sake. So this representational thing with yeah. memes, right? So the kind of argument I think you're making is that instead of it being the case where like an image represents some idea or represents yeah. some concept or notion, um, the way memes work is that they coordinate existing images from a whole variety of sources. And it's the linkages that the viewer sees yeah. between those different sources that produces the effect of the image, yes. which is an emotional affective experience yeah. as much as anything so it's not about um you know there's a picture and it signifies a whole world of yeah. meaning for the person it's that these things just link up in a particular way and when that linkaging mm. is successful it produces an emotion in yes the is no, that exactly right yeah there's a good point of comparison that i wrote about was so i compared a nazi propaganda poster from like 1940 or something um, to a meme shared on a far right, um, there's a militia called the Boogaloo Boys. They're a really interesting case. Um, so the Nazi propaganda poster, it has this kind of surface depth way of reading it where there's this horrible picture of like a Jewish figure. There's the Jewish star, the, um, German sort of state is seen to be so, sort of strong. So everything there is to understand, which is, Jewish people are an inferior race. The German race is the Aryan pure blood. Mm -hmm. the, the Jewish people are to blame for the war. Um, kind of all of that just comes from the image itself. And you can read it hermeneutically is the sort of, is the term. So surface to depth, you can interpret it. Um, with a meme, because everything is just references to other images that are brought together and kind of coagulate onto the artifact. It resists that kind of hermeneutic interpretation. Because the point is not to interpret it. The point is to kind of recognize various things and draw together those links. And yeah, as you said, when it's successful, it kind of creates an affect. Great. Yeah. Good. I think, I think this actually opens onto another point that we uh, should discuss. But, um, one huge problem with the second impeachment for Trump mm. is that there was never a smoking gun, yeah. right? So he never said, uh, people, for the sake of the country, go and storm the Capitol, yeah. kill the lawmakers and stop this from happening. Exactly. You know? So yeah. he never said anything of the kind. He made allusions, you know, fight. Oh, he said things like fight for your life and made allusions yeah. uh, to various ways of, you know, protesting. Um, and yeah, Rudy Giuliani, who spoke at the same event, he called for a trial by combat, which of course is a Game of Thrones <laughs> reference, which um, I think is very opposite for what we're talking about. But basically, like... That in itself is the logic of the meme you're talking mm. about. You're raising the, these ideas of trial by combat and violence, this idea of, you know, with the Giuliani Game of Thrones reference, it's like, we need to go and crush some good dude's head for yeah. the sake of the country, for, for this audience that is looking at us while we do it, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, do you, so do you think what Trump was doing there was almost relying on that logic of the meme yeah. to raise the idea of riot without ever saying it? No, exactly. I think that's, like, completely correct. I think it's worth emphasizing that, like, 
I do think that Trump knew what he was doing. But yeah, as you said, like the second impeachment, the struggle with that beyond the fact that it was a Republican stacked house was um, that, yeah, there was no, there was no sentence. It wasn't like, let's, let's go break stuff at the Capitol. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- like theoretically a big idea in the in the research that I was doing something called the dark refrain which is lifted from Deleuze and Guattari's um a thousand plateaus and it's a it's a the refrain is a complicated idea but it basically refers to a kind of macro societal movement um where multiple actors fall into unconscious behavioral rhythms so talking earlier an example would be like if I was walking with you down the street chances are we'll fall into like lockstep and be walking at the same pace. And it's that kind of unconscious behavioral thing where the collective is acting in a certain way, but it, it, that, that action kind of exceeds the influence of any particular individual. It's the kind of like the swarm, basically. The idea in the theory I was reading is something called the dark refrain. Um, it's basically an idea of like collective mimesis. So a collective kind of copying of individual sort of tendencies and, and bodies and that can be influenced by social media because it has that kind of big collective reach um so basically like social media can be used to ba- like leverage unconscious kind of behavioral um tendencies in essence and and to produce them I and yeah yeah exactly so, yeah, yeah and, and to produce them um to yeah to sort of take take advantage and, and produce them. So I think really what what Trump did, and he knew again he knew what he was doing, was to just constantly kind of peddle this this big lie, rely on the repetition of social media to to hammer that big lie into a fact. Um, and it's a lie that raises affect sort of you know the feeling of being deceived, exactly, the rage yeah. and the anger that yeah. comes with that, and so on as well. Yeah. So you're repeating this narrative and building this affective force amongst many people who. When they congregate, they're yeah. already in this lockstep. Exactly. Yeah. For something. Yeah. Whatever that might exactly. be. Exactly. So basically, again, it's like, it's kind of just all about vibes. If you pump enough people <laughs> with bad vibes and then bring them to a place which is the seat of the bad vibes and then say something like fight like hell. Okay. Let's just like walk to the capital now. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, obviously you've, you've kind of lit the tinder to an extent. Um, and yeah, I think that again, that's like a big part of why like the, like some of like the liberal classes really struggle to combat someone like Trump is that kind of the traditional idea of like concrete evidence just doesn't work, despite the fact that we all know that like Trump knew what he was doing, right? Mm. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the really scary thing about Trump is that if you try and understand him in like um, a coherent hermeneutical surface depth way it's just never going to work this is why the systems that are set up um sort of around trump and that have been trying to be leveraged to get him just in prison somehow haven't really been working i think or an aspect as to why it's not really been working yeah i think the really hard thing to understand with something like trump is that it if you're not invested in the idea of trump or the politics Mm. um that he represents um or maybe politics he does not represent yeah um, yeah the incoherence that he represents um yeah um one of the tricky things to understand is that it seems totally nonsensical and baffling yeah. and quite stupid, frankly, yeah. um, but it's nonetheless devastatingly effective. Yeah. And I, I think for people on the left grasping that effectiveness and understanding it and using it ourselves perhaps is where maybe yeah. we need to go. And I think that's something the right does extremely well. Lots of people say this kind of thing. The right does it extremely well. The left have absolutely no clue how to do it. Yeah, not at all. 
As I kind of yeah. they have that the left I think struggles to yeah and they're rather all kind of little pockets I think that've understood it but they're just sort of like really far far flung not far flung but like very far away from any kind of like mainstream left politics really mm. um which is which which is a shame I mean I I you know God help the Biden campaign. Yeah, what <laughs> kind of affects this Biden exactly. yeah, <laughs> coordinating, yeah. you know? Beyond, like, kind of humour, but in a sort of, like, oh, Pity. Yeah. yeah, that kind of way. Yeah, yeah God, okay, so... Yeah, and uh, this moves us, I think, to our to a point that we need to discuss, is the incoherence of yeah. Trumpism. So, um, yeah, so your argument is that the meme-like structure of Trumpist politics and the use of memes and stuff, they're not really forwarding any coherent political mm. ideas. So, um, you know... Contrasting this with, say, the Nazis who had their ideas of, you know, blood and soil and the Thousand Year Reich and um, these, you know, very, very large scale and detailed, if mm. nonsensical conspiracies and so on, um, that were they, their political program was pursuing these sorts of things. Whereas Trumpism doesn't seem to have any of that. Like, mm. um, even down on the level of his political speeches, Trump seems to oscillate between saying stuff that's more or less nonsense and yeah. uh, you use the word noise in your speech yeah. oh sorry your thesis um, more or less noise and then to little islands of meaning that emerge yeah. from it um, so yeah like with this incoherence and stuff so um, it seems to me that Trumpism might not really involve a real political program but basically just draws on a collection of signifiers so you know the post-war 1950s era of America and the idea yeah. of um you know, white stability, I guess, yeah. for, you know, if we're bringing the race element into this and so on. And they're drawn together, not as a statement of meaning, but to produce a particular kind of affect in the followers. So mm. my, my thinking is maybe that what these supporters want is not some coherent political program, but to feel a particular way, to feel proud, to feel strong, to feel powerful, and perhaps to feel afraid as well, because there's an enjoyment in fear yeah. as well that we shouldn't neglect as well. Okay. And so, um, yeah, there are lots and lots of examples of this in the January 6th moment. So you've mentioned the QAnon shaman. Yeah. Um, there's something called the Kekistan flag you <laughs> yeah. mentioned, which I think we should discuss Sweet. as well. <laughs> and, um, you also allude to describing Trump as an orange Jesus, which is obviously a religious, yeah. um, religious signifier mm. that is nonetheless also deeply non-religious. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how do you think the symbolic logic operates politically and what sort of politics does it actually result in or yeah, sure. maybe non-politics even? So a big, well, I think um, orange, orange Jesus is, is funny because, you know, it's dumb, but it, it does, I think it connotes something quite particular about Trump's influence in these online spaces and also relates to his influence among the evangelical base that might not necessarily be so aggressively online. Um, something that I always found interesting with Trump is that he's so overtly like ungodly, right? Like he's not like this kind of Mitt Romney, um, kind of, um, figure. Like he's, he's, he's so overtly not like, not, doesn't really espouse Christian values, shall we say. Yeah. You know, all these, the sexual abuse stuff, the, mm -hmm. the stuff with, was it Billy Bush or something, that recording in 2016, mm. um, in the, in the, in the caravan. And I was sort of like, what, what is there? A, why, <laughs> you know, how is he able to <laughs> circumnavigate this? Because um, he seems to, he doesn't even try and he kind of panders, but doesn't really pander to an evangelical base. He kind of mentions God every now and then, and then he'll start swearing or something, you know, like in, his, <laughs> in his speeches. Um, so what what I found 
was that if you look at this sort of symbolic logic between a, like something like the flag of Kekistan and even more traditional religious symbolism, is that those kind of two milieus, so like a kind of political milieu and a religious milieu, kind of become singularized under a shared logic of the repetitive processes of the online, um, which is how he's able to circumnavigate that kind of weird, or not weird, the kind of overt ungodliness of his, of his, of his, how he carries himself. Um, an idea that I found was something called like meme belief, which is weird because it's quite oxymoronic. Cause as, as we've sort of said, there's not really much to believe in with a meme. And yet to believe it sort of. It's kind of like the performative instanti- instantiations that are brought about by religious ritual are carried over into these online spaces where just through the repetition of a meme and the memes affect, you begin to believe it. Um, a good example is, yeah, this Kekistan thing. <laughs> yeah. So what is Kekistan? So, so funny. I think we need to know what Kek means yeah. to start with, right? So Kek, Kek means lol. I think Kek means lol in... Maybe Spanish. I'm not sure. It means lol in the language, and it it it, it sort of starts on like in like World of Warcraft. Um, but just as an aside, I did I played World of Warcraft, and people yeah. did say kek a lot. Ah, so, yeah, nice. it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> Brilliant. That's good. I mean, yeah. So obviously, number one, this is gaming culture thing. Gaming culture does kind of feature heavily in these online spaces um, for reasons that I kind of kind of hypothesize about, but I'm not actually sure about. Anyway. So Kek means lol. Kek is also an Egyptian god. Sometimes this Egyptian god is um, portrayed as a frog. Brings us to Pepe. <laughs> <laughs> so you can already see the bizarre links. Exactly, right? It's right? just all these random things. It's that almost are like clicking together. through Wikipedia yeah. pages. Yeah, it is. It's like yeah. a hypertextual logic. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. So uh, Byung-Chil Han's um, book Hyperculture is a massive tangent but he's got a chapter in Hyperculture called Hypertext where he literally hypothesizes that the hypertextual logic is how you can understand culture now oh there yeah. you go wow like it's, it's really interesting the Wikipedia deep dive yeah is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's real I mean and that uses good examples of like you ever been to, I'm from South London you ever been to Tooting Tooting Market uh, no I haven't actually okay, no. so Tooting Market is one of those weird um, kind of open air market, not open air, one of those market things where there's just a bunch of different kind of cuisines and drinks in the same space. So you're walking mm-hmm. through and it's just, it's like, it'll be Indian, then it'll be Chinese, and then it'll be Thai, and then it'll be Greek and kind of all these things kind of put together. And he uses that as an example of kind of a hypertextual logic where everything's kind of just linked in this same space. Yeah, and right. That's yeah. emblematic of a kind of mass globalization, hypercultural form. You could almost everything. represent that as a Wikipedia page, exactly. like lists of different world cuisines. Exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, yeah, so, yeah, kek. <laughs> kek, 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 as kek, people kek, kek. would say is a gang to your yeah, world exactly. warcraft. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so if we look at the symbolism of kek and if we try and track it hermeneutically, it does just kind of lead to this set of disparate sources that kind of beyond their origins in quite a highly digital form of discourse, they don't necessarily come together around a coherent politics in the same way as the Confederate flag does with, you know, even though it's changed a lot, it's still been sort of soldered to a set of right-wing politics and values post-Civil War. Yeah, there's a really definite history attached exactly. to that and a huge narrative and so on and stuff, whereas like the Keck thing is not that at all, you know? Yeah, and, 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 and yet through... So we'll talk about misrecognition later, but through how, through this repetition of Keck, it sort of it interacts with a traditional logic of symbolism in the sense that to bring a flag 
kind of misrecognizes that flag as something that does unify and that doesn't have these quite disparate sources. Um, so it's all like to design and bring a flag, even though the kind of incoherence dominates, you still have this kind of performative register of a coherent project. And that's kind of how I tried to link the religious and the political in the both kind of get, um, the, they both kind of get bottomed out and they both just become about the signifiers that represent them. And just through that process of repetition, they sort of just get brought together. If that makes sense? Yeah, that no, makes um, perfect sense. Yeah. So yeah, as opposed to the idea of say like a flag representing some sort of national, yeah. like it represents the nation and what everything the nation stands for, like mm. the French flag, liberté, égalité, yeah. fraternité, yeah. those ideas, which signifies the whole history of the French revolution and so on. Um, this flag it doesn't function because it alludes to this stuff. It functions because the act of holding a flag alludes yeah, exactly. to these sorts of things. So exactly. the, the holding of the flag here unifies without any actual yeah. idea or narrative unifying exactly. beyond that. And really it's just sort of like empty. So, but you, you can even see this as kind of like the religious stuff too. So there's quite a few kind of strong images that I found where someone was recording just the big kind of swathe of people and there's someone literally holding up a Game of Thrones meme with like Trump's face on it next to someone holding up like a statue of the Three Kings. And those two things, I think, are both emptied of their original kind of content and they're literally just there as a kind of floating signifier that kind of alludes to some sort of belief and some sort of ritual but it's not it's not necessarily religious or political it's just about repetition fantastic yeah, yeah this draws together a whole pile of things that i think is yeah. worth making because like um one thing about trump um and the orange jesus thing is calling him jesus is linking him to this idea of the messiah or yeah. um some sort of messianic hope right and so um, I think that's where Jesus comes in. It's like he's not literally a Christian symbol, but he represents some sort of messianic yeah. faith for people, okay? And bringing this into the territory of narcissism here, mm. okay? So I think for the followers of Trump who grew up playing things like World of Warcraft, these sorts of games allow you to feel like a hero, okay? Yeah. You become the protagonist, you are the hero, you're pursuing some sort of mighty goal. And as you're immersed in this game, it's unreal, of course, but it does give you those sorts of narcissistic affects of mastery and importance mm. and so on. You know, when you're playing The Legend of Zelda, you feel like you're the hero of time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Defeating Ganondorf and stuff. And <laughs> Trump. So, yeah, there's this sort of narcissism um, that people experience in these sorts of moments playing video games. And I think what people crave in the Trump movement is the ability to feel those sorts of things. Yeah. And so Trump wants to feel like the Messiah to have people mm. vest in with that messianic hope and these people want to feel as though they're participating in some sort of messianic yeah, movement, right? Exactly. Like, and so, yeah, like the, the affect under writing, it might be these sorts of ones we might call narcissistic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the content itself is all stuff that links through to the underlying yeah. affect here. Yeah. So whether it could have been video games or it could have been in another time, novels or movies or something, it just, in our particular historical moment, that's, the symbols that link to those affects that sort of swim beneath them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the ocean on which these, you know, little icebergs are floating, maybe. No, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're sort of entirely right. And I think that that one of the main divisions that was interesting, sort of theoretically, is between the macro political and the micro political. So that's again like a Deleuze and Gatori thing where there's this macro political idea of, you know, Messiah and, future and these kind of big, broad political projects or, you know, ideas. And then there's the micro stuff and that's the affect, that's the narcissism, that's how it impacts the individual. Um, 
and there's a guy called William E. Connolly who he works at John Hopkins, I think. Um, and he writes an essay in 2005 called The Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine. Um, <laughs> really catchy title. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it really rolls off the tone. Can I buy one of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. But he sort of theorized, so he goes, goes against received, win, uh, received wisdom at the time. Um, so George Bush is president. George Bush Jr. is president. Um, there's a lot of kind of like cowboy capitalism, this big sort of American psycho-esque Wall Street, Wall Street, you know, mm -hmm. growth, growth, growth. But at the same time, a big kind of like evangelical base. A lot of people at the time thought that those two things were merely married out of a sense of kind of shrewd pragmatism politically. Mm -hmm. But Connolly theorizes that really what's, what the, what the things that are linking those two things, um, is affect is a certain like existential disposition to being in the world. So he kind of thinks that this, um, the economic greed of the Wall Street types reverberates with this kind of transcendental resent resentment that, um, the evangelicals have towards those who are non-believers. And if you want to understand that link, it's less about the actual political consequences and more about how these people vibe. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's about vibe and Connolly literally writes that Trump is this like mutation of the resonance machine that, that he identifies initially in the mid 2000s. And he kind of follows this formula of like the way that affect is moved between the macro and the micro political is through representation. So through like an aesthetic register. Mm. So he writes about TV um, and, and how George Bush would like leverage various TV performances to, you know, like you rock up at, like a rodeo in like an SUV <laughs> and be like these um these environmentalists want to take away the your your USV uh, yeah, um, yeah, SUV even and uh, and your USBs yeah and, and, and your USBs your SUVs whatever yeah. but, but the um you know if, if you're if you're a person of God you should buy this SUV you know that kind of thing right yeah yeah um, so yeah you know, like obviously like core this is like marketing yeah, at its finest yeah, in a way yeah. you know like coordinating some sort of like religious affect an idea alongside a car like there's yeah. absolutely no reason they need to be like exactly. but there can be is the point yeah that is it but also with 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 george w there was a <laughs> sense of like um if he he would still pander to that evangelical base mm. very overtly right? mm. he'd still be like he'd still talk about god and all this kind of stuff which trump does but then he'll just supplement that by being like very non non-evangelical yes right? yeah yeah, yeah. Within, like the same sentence a lot of the time yeah. and that kind of indicates to me there's a little bit of like a change in the resonance machine where those two legs of evangelical and capitalist have kind of just slowly kind of come together mm -hmm. um and they become kind of singularized and i think that was where the meme came in was that they become singularized under this logic of just like pure repetition yeah perfect yeah yeah, yeah. okay repetition creates the link because there isn't one inherent exactly yeah and yeah just some um, one example and we'll be talking about him on the podcast a bit later but kanye west is maybe one of the epitomes of this kind of thing because um a few years ago he was appearing on um you know the uh programs for like mega church prosperity preachers yeah, like joel Osteen yeah. and yeah. proclaiming his love of god and stuff and i think in the same year he hosted the Pornhub awards <laughs> yeah Exactly. exactly. Yeah, so you know, like he designed like he designed trophies that looked like alien sex toys and sold merch merch. There was like a t shirt yeah. of like, you know, you know, Mia Malkova, hottest ass and stuff. And it's like the like the two things for him are like they're utterly incoherent politically yeah. and stuff, and yet they're brought together exactly. with this affect supporting them. Like they're yeah. both ways of feeling the same thing, maybe. Yeah. And that's why they're tolerated despite the contradictions. Exactly, yeah. 
I maybe mean, there's probably an argument to be said that like the the the, the you know the Kanye base wouldn't have seen the Pornhub Awards thing because the algorithmic bubbles meant that you don't you're not going to get exposed to that content. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, you're definitely right. Kanye is just a really fascinating example, I think. Um, mm. Even the the, the the really aggressive shift from George Bush doesn't care about black people to like Hitler was cool. It's like yeah, it's insane, bizarre. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you know, talk about memes. It's very. It also is super memey, right? Yeah. In the logic of it, it's like it's like a South Park sketch or something. Genuinely, and like even yeah. again, like another shift in Kanye was, um, you know, on uh, 2018's Yay, he has this song called Violent Crimes, where mm-hmm. he's like finally realizing that maybe misogyny is not so great because he has a daughter. Yeah, and yeah. then I don't know if you've seen on Instagram recently, but he's been posting yeah, on Bianca yeah. Sensori. Like, yeah. like yeah. I, I feel like just so uncomfortable. Yeah. So, like it's like she's become some sort of like thing and they're doing this public like perverse like yeah. mass uh, um, sort of you know parades exactly. it's, it's very strange and yeah. he'll still turn around and say that he loves God and yeah. loves God <laughs> and all this stuff you know yeah it'd be interesting to think what God means for Kanye yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, probably himself at this well point, I am a know. God featuring yeah, God so, yeah, Jesus yeah. you know so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, but, oh, this, maybe we don't go down that path but there's a whole lot I can say about that track in particular yeah yeah about how he both you know avows being a God but also disavows yeah. it yeah he wants yeah. to be a bit of makes him uncomfortable which is why he is a God featuring God it's yeah. not yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, that actually brings us to another point we need to discuss, yeah. which is um, irony. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. In, in in your work, you talk a lot about irony, and um, for you, it's something. Uh, irony is an affect that allows you both to avow and disavow a political position. So, yeah. um, in that sense, like you can both believe something and refuse to believe it, much in the way that the uh, Freudian fetishist does. You know, yeah. so they at once accept the empirical reality of something occurring, but on another level. Level, another level that arises because there's a split in their ego, they deny the truth of something. Yeah. So something maybe disappears or dies. They accept that empirically on another level, they s- still believe it subsists. So, um, yeah, there's this irony. So another thing you say it does is it um, helps to mediate violence through a lens of unreality. So mm. distancing persecutors from their acts. And so yeah. I, think, I think for me, it's, it almost seems like uh, committing violence in real life for the ironist is like playing a video game. So it allows you to hurt people and to feel everything that you feel by doing so, um, while also not really doing anything at all. It's yeah. both real and unreal. And so, yeah, um, I'd like you to talk about what role irony might have played in recent uh, right-wing political movements. And um, maybe to think as well about how earlier fascist movements were deeply unironic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the difference Deeply, deeply yeah. serious. Yeah, very serious, yeah. yeah. So I think my way of thinking it through was, I think this, this this might be quite meandering, but so misrecognition is something that featured heavily in my thinking. Um, so with the flag of like Kekistan, there's a misrecognition that it kind of unifies, right? Even though it's completely esoteric and only really a few people are going to kind of recognize what it is. Um, mis- irony was a way of kind of explaining how these asignifying tendencies still kind of like produce affect so irony sort of yeah it because irony is balanced towards what is kind of like unsaid um it allows for political positions to be avowed and also disavowed so a big part of something like the QAnon phenomenon is that as i said it was a live action role play and that it's sort of like snowballed but that kind of trolling element of it's just a joke is kind of the uh, it, it 
that that logic is seen quite profoundly in these online spaces. Um, this is a quote from a theorist called Viveka S. Green. She writes that, quote, irony and satire rely on profound levels of dissonance in order to make their status as rhetorical devices clear. But the same tweet can be read as serious speech to some and comic satire to others. And I think because there's a lot of misrecognition around how something like the Pakistan flag might like unify when really it doesn't actually um, unify, um, it kind of lends itself towards irony because irony oh, such a difficult thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, one yeah. one thing um just to maybe give us an example yeah. to work with here. So um if you know like someone who's using irony as a political device, they say, Oh yeah, right, I'm a white supremacist, you idiot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So they say I am a white supremacist yeah. there. And in fact they might well mean it. Yeah. Um so by saying this, they allow themselves to distance themselves from the position, to insult the person claiming that yeah. they've got this position while also maintaining exactly. that position. So you get this kind of like, you get to hurt the other. You also get to not be the thing that you are and to be the thing you are all yeah. at once, which I think allows you to avoid things like guilt. Exactly. Quite well. And I think there's going back to the baked Alaska thing is probably a good example. Um, so when Bates Lasser kind of calls for his patriots to be sort of maced just for the pure love of it, there is this strange distance created between the enjoyment of the violence and the political ends of it. Um, and there is, there is this kind of like pre-established register of, of patriotic affect, but it's subordinated to a logic that distances itself from the actual thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to kind of account for that effectual distancing, um, which I think is, is linked to the kind of misrecognitions of the political for the non-political and sort of vice versa and the religious for the political and all this, all these kind of strange kind of combinations of, of various kind of symbols. Um, so like, for example, there's a misrecognition that January 6th was a patriotic, was a patriotic event when you're invading this icon of American power. And the last time that happened was in 1814 by like the British invaded basically. Um, and I kind of just, that kind of weird effectual distance is something that I think irony lends itself to because it's so balanced in the favor of kind of like what is unsaid. And it's so balanced in the favor of like interpretation that you have this kind of thing that's happening and then irony's kind of sat on top of it. And that distance that's created is, is something that is seen, like you said, in, in that kind of white supremacist thing where I'm avowing this position by saying that I'm a white supremacist, but I'm distancing myself from it by saying that I'm ironic. Mm. And when that happens in the kind of lens of violence, there's a lot of, yeah, violence for violence sake and violence just sort of do violence, but not really engage with the kind of reality of what's going on around you. There's just mm. this kind of cognitive dissonance that's created. And I kind of attributed that to a certain digital logic. Um, where not only is there irony kind of in these online spaces, as we've said, but there's a lot of just confusion around even what what you see online is true, for example, which is why like conspiracy theories are so able to kind of percolate online is that there's this kind of like, almost kind of this kind of Baudrillardian thing of there's a real difference between um, seeing something happen and seeing something happen as mediated through a screen. Yes, There's always yeah. this kind of distance sort of shown. No, that's great. And uh, I, I wanted to bring up a point here that you made in your thesis about how you, you told me about this documentary you watched mm. where um, people get into the Capitol and then they're like, holy shit, we're here. Yeah. And then they just pull out their phones and start to film. Yeah. I wonder, so that, that, that idea of, um, you know, you've got the immediate uh, reality in front of you where, you know, you've invaded the Capitol then you put the phone up between you and you're, mm. you're effectively watching a video of yourself exactly. invading the Capitol. And I think that that external thing of filming it 
that's almost going on internally already. Yeah, it's like yeah. there's a psychical screen exactly. that says, I'm just watching myself do this yeah. as you do it, you know? That distance is really I think actually it's one of the it's one of the saving graces of what actually happened on January sixth, because I think if people had gone in there with more of a plan, then it would have been really bad. Mm. <laughs> um and that distance is created by the phone just creates this sense of unreality. In that documentary, there's so many instances of people are filming and they're like, I can't believe this is happening. It doesn't feel real. It feels like a movie. Um, <laughs> while they're creating exactly, it. Exactly, while they're yeah, creating yeah. it. And I did I did kind of like take that seriously. I think like irony irony is is difficult because um, obviously it's balanced in the favour of the unsaid, but it's kind of like an affect of an affect. Mm. And that kind of like layering, yeah, just creates this kind of weird actual bodily performative practice like in the baked alaska thing where you're going and you're getting involved but you're kind of doing it for the for the meme you know you're yeah, doing yeah, it yeah, for the yeah. plot you know um yeah, yeah like like it's it's a i remember um Zizek has spoken about this but maybe even at the summer school mm. but remember how he talked about how um one of the things the nazis had to do to their soldiers was to convince them to commit these atrocities but also to feel nothing about it oh, so yeah, they, yeah. one way of doing that psychically was to be almost like i'm not the one here doing this mm. this is happening and i'm observing it almost in a zen type yeah. way where like this thing's happening with your body you're committing these acts and the harm's coming about but mm. you're not actually really present yeah. doing it and stuff yeah. you're, you've withdrawn inwards yeah exactly um, yeah i think that sort of um logic of separation um that can come about in a few ways but irony is one way that it can happen yeah exactly um, I think that, um, again, but again, that's kind of about distancing, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's about kind of putting the screen up. Mm. And a lot of like the distancing that also happens with the Nazi stuff is that if you kind of dehumanize the other and then you can kind of do these things to a kind of Jewish population and maybe feel something about it. But a lot of the kind of help about it is like they are less than human and therefore mm -hmm. there's a distance there. And there's a bit less of an overtly racial, like obviously Trump is a, there, there is a racist, racist element to Trump, but a lot of it is less kind of overtly racialized. Um, and I think that distancing, yeah, is kind of already put in play by the fact that Trumpism is such a heavily mediated political movement. Um, that yeah, if you get, like, like you said, you put up that kind of psychic screen that just kind of glazes you over and then you can kind of commit these acts of violence and not really think about it as to, as to what it actually is sort of in, in, um, in actuality. That being said, there is an interesting moment where a veil is sort of pierced when Ashley Babbitt is shot. Mm. Um, it's a real, like, when she's shot, everyone around her kind of, it's like they snap to and they're like, whoa, oh, whoa, I'm in the capsule, whoa, whoa. And that kind of, there, there is a kind of rupture there that's quite interesting that really shatters the irony because someone is now dead. Yes, um, yeah. Because, like, irony and, like, that screen is something you have to enact. It's yeah. not something that's there to begin exactly. with. It's performative yeah, thing. Yeah. It just completely breaks because it's like, oh, this is serious now. Um, whereas a bit of, like, kind of pushing and shoving <laughs> is a bit less... It it, it 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 doesn't it lends itself more to that screening I think because it's just a bit less like barbaric and visceral I think. Yeah, yeah yeah I think one thing that might make um stuff like Trumpism more alarming over time is if this um ironic distance maybe collapses like yeah. perhaps the irony is a way of getting closer to these things that you want to do while keeping yourself apart from them and mm. it's when you don't need that screen anymore that things yeah. might become quite alarming yeah. where you're prepared to commit violence. Mm. With some level of sincerity, yeah. Um, where you're prepared to see other people experience it, yeah. like you know Ashley Babbitt being shot, you know that would be part of the course in a proper mm. revolutionary sort of, or you know like counter revolutionary uh, 
struggle and so on. Um, yeah, experiencing that violence and seeing it happen, that's something they'd need, be, need to be prepared to do if they were going to be serious about this. Yeah. And maybe the irony is a prelude to that. Exactly. But I, I, when I was talking earlier about misrecognition, that kind of led me to irony in the sense that, that there is already a screen between a kind of lay experience of the digital, what it is to experience reading a screen, what it is to experience reading a meme, and the actual like tech and the logic that are undergirding it. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned earlier that there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a way of reading stuff that's hermeneutic, and then there's a way of like networked reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a division between those two things. Hermeneutic is surface depth, networked is just surface. I think the one when one sees a meme, there is a natural tendency to try and read it hermeneutically. So there's a misrecognition there for hermeneutics when it actually should be network. A second one that's probably arguably more important is that the interface, as Alex Galloway has written, is a medium that is not a medium. So when you open your iPhone or your laptop, what you're looking at is code, mm-hmm. but you're not actually seeing code. And the code is obfuscated by either even bigger blogs, like globs of code, basically. It's very um, platonic in a way, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah, yeah. So again, then there's the, another division between like lay experience and the actual technological logic undergirding it. And that kind of like double misrecognition already means that the experience of digital kind of has this screening like overtly already there. And I think a lot of the actual confusions caused by various symbolic logics is just, is right there in the actual roots of what it is to experience mm. in digital. And that's where I ended up bringing irony in because it would, it could account for those misrecognitions because irony itself is so, lends itself so easily to a kind of misrecognitive, I guess, understanding. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. That's great. Um, it was, it was going, uh, on to talk a little bit more about um, the link between something like Trump, or whether there is a link between something like Trumpism and fascism. Yeah. So obviously we shouldn't conflate them lightly. We should be very specific with what we mean by both of them if we're going yeah. to make a good political analysis no, of them sure. and so on. But um, something that struck me listening to these uh, discussions of incoherence and so on is that fascist and far-right political movements have often used these incoherent, appropriated, and quite historically confused bits of symbolism. So I mentioned um, the swastika and uh, before, and obviously that was lifted from Indian religion and yeah. had no meaning in terms of the German Nazi project um, originally. Um, another one, too, is the Ku Klux Klan, who quite bizarrely appropriated imagery from uh, Scottish clans and derived their mythos from a 1915 fictional film called The Birth of a Nation. Um, and yeah, even in your thesis, you talk about how the rioters and on January 6th um, appropriated some ideas from the French Revolution, and some of them felt they were storming the Bastille, even though, yeah. like, even though, like, on the level of appearance, it looked like that. On the level of form, perhaps, it absolutely wasn't the same no, kind of thing yeah. at all. Like, there was no unifying political logic that exactly. propelled them to do that. So my my question here is, I guess, is um, how do you think the incoherence of Trumpism relates to this incoherence we've long observed in far-right movements? And do you think they're fundamentally different, or do you think they might be similar? I do think that, the, that Trumpism sits on a similar... Like, the dynamic is definitely there. Um, it's it's still reappropriative and it's still sort of deeply incoherent. Um, what's different about Trump and what makes it difficult f- to sort of like combat someone like him is that the nakedness of the incoherence is just abundantly clear. Um, 
And yeah, you're right. Fascism, it, it kind of has always been incoherent, but I think it's tried to mask that incoherence in some sort of logical veil, at least. Yeah, um, you had the ideologists of the Nazi yeah, regime and yeah. what ideologists of Trump is there other than exactly. just flooding the channels with shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally panic, you know? just yeah. relying on the bad vibes yeah. <laughs> um, and just pointing at someone else and going, he's the problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, and an interesting point of comparison sort of arises if you put like a Trump, a Trump, Trump, <laughs> Trump, Trump, Trump is Hitler, aren't they? No. Um, a speech of Hitler or Himmler's or Goebbels or whatever, sort of next to a speech of Trump's. So the former is going to be like deeply chilling and horrible and like not really make much sense if you think about it, but it's going to have a certain logical consistency to it where you can kind of see how someone could be duped, I guess. And yeah, the challenge will be on the level of the empirical as exactly. much as anything. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's, it's, it's, again, if you read it hermeneutically, it starts to fall apart. Whereas with Trump, if you like just put the words on a screen, it's just noise and it doesn't really make much sense. There's no logical consistency sort of like by default. Um, so, you know, like Hitler was really incredibly well known for like his kind of oration. And I don't really think Trump is. Obviously, he's a very sort of like overt, overtly recognizable style, but. If you actually something very compelling about yeah, that style, but yeah. it's certainly not, you know, like your classical it really, yeah. uh, talented orator, is yeah, it? You know? Exactly. So I think the number one, that incoherence is certainly consistent, but what's different with Trump is that it's, it's just nakedly so, which indicates that if you're going to try and combat someone like Trump, you've got to not really look at the logic and look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think there's a difference between the incoherent kind of symbolic reappropriation of older, kind of Nazi, Nazism and, and right-wing movements and the kind of ever-sliding reappropriations that occur online. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you point out with the KKK and the Nazis, they kind of got their imagery from random kind of sources. But now when you look at a swastika and you look at a bunch of dudes in white pointy hoods around a burning crucifix, you think KKK and the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Like that, there's a long durée aspect of that there, but like it's definitely just like completely kind of soldered together now. Mm-hmm. I can't really think of a similar... Um, kind of iconic symbol with Trump beyond the red hat and beyond himself and beyond himself but those two things aren't being appropriated the red Mm. hat's like made in China somewhere and Trump's like you know Trump so (laughs) it's not really it's not really the the same in that way and obviously there's kind of a case we made for Pepe the Frog but from my time on 4chan um, (laughs) I can see that he's starting to slide away now and he's being replaced by like Doge the dog the, God, the face of the Shiba Inu. Yeah, I remember when it became a meme yeah, like a decade ago. Yeah, exactly. It was just this funny little little dog guy. And now, yeah. And I can't like I, again. I can't believe I wrote my dissertation on this. <laughs> I genuinely can't. Um, so again, again, there's this appropriate dynamic at play with Trumpism, but it doesn't. It, it's incredibly quick. It doesn't allow the symbols to sit in the same way as like the mm. swastika could sit and then like become. Uh, it kind of at this point, I think, irreversibly soldered to. Yeah, like there was something about like those images that become so deeply entrenched emotionally, yeah. and like you know, it stirs some very powerful things. That particular symbol, exactly, maybe, in a way that. Pepe exactly. never did and yeah. maybe never will now. He's yeah. fading, you know? He's gone away. I think I mean, maybe a part of the Pepe stuff is that he's been semi, not disowned, but he's been, tr- like, the creator of Pepe has made a real effort to, like, bring Pepe yes. back. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't really chime with a lot of the internet dynamics anyway, where, like, as soon as you put something out there, it's just going to be chopped and changed anyway. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's an element of everything Everything online slides so quickly that it can't really come together. But at the same time, it is, the dynamic is reappropriative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think returning, and I think this is actually a really recent thing, so returning to oratory, 
and speech making. Um, Sarah Ahmed's The Cultural Politics for Motion. I remember yeah, I was going yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So cool. God, oh my, aren't we cute? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, as you know, she writes about William Hague and his treatment of asylum seekers in like, in like 2000. And she kind of uses like this Lacanian thing of there's like a metonymy among words, there's a big signifying net, and they might slide, but they do stick at the same time and you can draw like a line between associating asylum seekers with like dirt and sewage um, and the foreigner with like being overwhelmed and mm. that kind of creates this affects of fear around the foreigner um, which is why it's kind of an effective rhetorical strategy as she calls it like an effective economy I um, mean this is still there you see it all the time like Braverman and you do see it with Trump when he's calling mm. like Mexicans like rapists and, and this, this yeah, kind of yeah. thing um, but Again, if you look at Trump's speeches, they're overwrought with so much kind of lexical noise that I think it destabilizes that field mm -hmm. that, that Ahmed's analysis kind of hinges upon. And Lauren Berlant has a good thing about this where she writes that it's like it's in the noise of Trump's message that increases the apparent value of what's clear about it. Um, this, this, this is a quote. Um, the ways he's, the ways he's right seem more powerful somehow in relief against the ways he's blabbing. Mm -hmm. So the affect theory of that is like where Sarah Ahmed kind of focuses on like the use of the word and how the signifiers like relate to other signifiers and create this affect. Balance is like words as noise. So the words don't actually signify anything particularly historical or political, but they non nonetheless kind of retain that affect. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the, repro the appropriative dynamic is still there, but it operates at a different speed. Mm. And that speed changes the dynamic in that the signifiers are just a lot more slippery and sliding mm. and don't sit in the same way. Um, and that's why trying to combat Trump on the level of logic is just an incredibly difficult yeah, that, that's really good. Yeah. What, what do you think's coming through in the moments of noise for Trump then? Because like, like there's, you know, a lot of different ways noise can feel, right? So yeah. there's noise that can be very distressing and noise that can be very calming or noise that, you know, serves all sorts of emotional functions. And so between the islands of meaning, um, to borrow from Sartre there, yeah, um, yeah, in, yeah. in Trump's uh, uh, discourse, what is the noise actually doing for the followers? Do you think is it like lulling them in a particular way, or exciting them in a particular way? Or I, I think I think it's, it's, it's an argument to be made that it's actually more effectually stimulating. Obviously, if you if you put it if you put it on a screen and you you disconnect the words from Trump, then the affect is not so immediately there. But if you actually watch him speak. Mm -hmm then the noise becomes this kind of like performance where you, you still start, like, you look at his body and you can feel this anger and you can feel this rage or whatever. Mm. And that just kind of constant, even if it isn't, even if the words are coming out of his mouth don't really make much sense, but it's the way they're said. Yes, yeah, the, the, the voice yeah. rather than the meaning. It's, yeah. it's the voice. That has, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I know you mentioned jazz a little bit, but yeah. it's almost like the scatting, right? It is. Like, yeah. Scatting yeah. has a, a massive affective <laughs> impact, right? Like, but um, it has no content in the level yeah. of meaning. It's yeah. like babbling and noise. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that's the thing about Trump, man. I think he's really, he's just, he pushed, he's pushed the envelope so hard when it comes to like what makes what does a, what does politics do yeah what, yeah, yeah. what what makes political positions effective and it's it seems to be it's literally it's almost like it's just pure feeling now mm -hmm. um i wonder if like an element i don't know it's just like oh, i'm just kind of like spitballing here but like the uh, 
Is it is it just like that Trump's base are like really dumb and like not educated? That doesn't feel that feels like a disservice. Like And there's plenty of people like, like um, I know yeah, people in real life and they're, they're not dumb and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I know doctors that are No, same. I mean, yeah. I mean like I uh, I'm not going to mention them, but you know, some of the interviews I had the past few weeks of these big corporates, these are people that have gone to university. And when I mentioned what I wrote my dissertation about, they go, oh, you don't like Trump then? And it's like, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> what? These are guys that have gone to like Oxbridge, you know? Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's like, you don't, it's like people just don't want to engage with the logic mm. because to do that would make them uncomfortable in some way or they just like- You'd be the, yucking their gums. Exactly, you know? yeah. They just, they just like, it's the narcissism aspect. They just yeah. like that like big- man thing <laughs> yeah 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 it's always it almost like when you're watching like you know a transformers movie or an mm. avengers film it's like the big crunching noise there's yeah no, yeah there's yeah. no like it's just like you know strength yeah, and yeah, power exactly. and stuff there exactly. it's not yeah I've, yeah i think trump yeah really like appeals to so many of those narcissistic mm. aspects even when he's doing things that from other points of view might actually be shameful or, yeah, you yeah. know, something that ought to provoke embarrassment. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I think he's operating in a whole different uh, sort of spectrum of ego ideals he to is, other people yeah. and maybe purifying the ego ideal into just it's like full just self-assertion <laughs> yeah. uh, form, you know, like it's just pure, yeah. pure self kind of shit. Mm. Yeah, that's a really nuanced uh, take from me right there. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, all right, yeah, so just... Don't need nuance, man. It's yeah, like yeah. the vibes. It's the vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, I want to talk to you about this incoherence on another axis. So we've spoken a little bit about Alberto Toscano's mm. uh, book, Late Fascism. And so in that book, he writes, um, fascism speaks to a plurality of times. And he cites the ideas of timelessness, epochal millenna millenarian, which is, you know, thousand-year Reich, and the nostalgic, the ideas of decay and decline, the time of revolution, all these different ideas of time as central to fascist ideologies. So he says that these utopian apocalyptic perceptions of time screen out fascism's subordination to capitalist temporalities of debt, turnover, competition, and labor time, whose contradictions it strives to escape. And so he's basically saying that... Um, the incoherence of fascist ideology comes from the way it tries to use time um, to obscure how capital capitalism operates with time, okay? So, mm. uh, but your argument seems that the incoherence um, in Trumpism, the incoherent time of Trumpism, emerges from the media technologies that drive capitalism. So, the the ideology here, the incoherent speech, points towards the, technolo the capitalist technologies that birth it. So, how do you think that... Uh, jives with uh, Toscano's I really uh, was yeah the, the, the Toscano was great and I think he made a much more convincing point than I did yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, the the temporal element is well it's always something that comes into um, discussions of internet media in general just because you know speed um, and you know this kind of weird result of even just the, the 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 way that the internet was kind of deployed in the workspace for example where they're time-saving technologies but actually increased time spent at work or time mm -hmm. working um and yeah i mean there's, there's the kind of like the modernist thing about how technology influenced time in general sort of the the, the, the sort of start of the mm -hmm. 1900s um but what the toscano reminded me of was a quote from peter teals peter teals billionaire Big investor in Facebook, huge Trump guy. Uh, New Zealand bunker, I think. As yeah, well. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Nutter, really, really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so this is a quote just after Trump's win in 2016. Um, quote, there are reduced expectations for the younger generation. And this is the first time this has happened in American history. Even if there are aspects of Trump that are retro and that seem to be going back to the past, I think a lot of people want to go back to a past that was futuristic. The Jetsons, Star Trek, they're dated but futuristic, end quote. So I think this chimes with Toscano's delineation of the kind of different pluralities of time. Toscano kind of differentiates between three of them. So there's a time for fascism, which is like the socio-political moment, really to be crude yeah post-crisis exactly. kind of where right. it becomes appealing or even necessary to some yeah, people yeah we see that immediately in this quote where he talks about the reduced expectations for the younger generation mm. right um, and then there's a time in fascism which is what it is to kind of like experience fascism as a subjective mm. as a, as a subject um, and that kind of chimes with the admittance of Trump being a bit retro and a little bit kind of going back um, and that you know the imaginary that Trump is engaging with is to make America great again mm-hmm and then there's the time of fascism, which kind of mediates between those two. And that's quite a difficult one. Toscano says it's a subjective, objective element mm-hmm. of fascism. Um, but I think we see that in this kind of weird asynchronity with a phrase like, go back to a past that was futuristic. Um, so there's kind of all three of those things at once, really, coming from Teal, which mm. I thought was really interesting. Um, but yeah, as you said, I think my my theorizations were a bit more media deterministic than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I related it back to those misrecognitions again. So as I sort of mentioned before, there's this kind of human, there's this human hermeneutics, sorry, um, for network, which is you're reading something that is networked as a way that is hermeneutic because the natural tendency or the way that we've been taught is to read something hermeneutically. Mm-hmm. And I think this is retrograde and that looks backwards. Okay. I labeled that the um the what has been mm-hmm. so we see that in you know the unfurling of a flag the tradition of what has been with the flag that logic is still there and then there's all the misrecognition which is the interface one which how the technology works and if we're going to be you know critical theoretical about it the software is a capitalist produced thing mm-hmm. it contains within it like any kind of commodity or any kind of technology produced by a certain system it contains within it a capitalist ideology um, software is also a modeling. It's, it's a, it's, it's diagrammatic in that way. It, it kind of, it models everything that you can do with software contains a capitalist ideology and as such, it models capitalism in a forward facing way. Mm-hmm. I labeled that the what has been. So the kind of guardrails that are set up by a technology like software. Mm-hmm. That's why it's, it's, it's so difficult in today's kind of world to be kind of like anti-capitalist online in like a true overt sense. Mm. Um, if you're going to pull together an anti-capitalist rally using like Instagram, you're going to lie in the pockets of Zuckerberg. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. That kind of like trying to escape that. um, It's really difficult. So software models ideology and it's forward facing. Then the possibility of the future within that modeling is, as I said, kind of future facing going that way. So we have hermeneutics going backwards, ideology and software going forwards. I labeled that the, the what could be. Um, so again, the trends like Kekistan, there's two things going on. There's the traditional bringing the flag, unfurling the flag, but then the mean belief of it, which is the forward facing belief of what the flag can do is something that is modeled and influenced through a sort of digital logic. Mm-hmm. And those are my two kind of temporalizations. I think if we're going to use like Toscano's imagery or Toscano's thinking, that would be, um, his terminology. I think what, what that is, is both kind of the, the for and in fascism, the mm-hmm. subjective experience 
of the fascism and also what that fascism can do pointing forward. Great. Um, that was a difficult one. Yeah. <laughs> to come up with it and like, no, you to, did great. It took that's, me that's a long really time yeah. to come through. And to be honest, like it was, it was like the big idea that I had. And if I had more space in the dissertation, it probably would have been a lot more kind of well kind of applied, but it became a very broad distinction, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's really cool. And like, I think that sort of answers some of my uh, questions that I had about uh, reification yeah. and technologies here. Because obviously we need to be careful not to reduce uh, political ideology purely to technology yeah, and yeah, the social right. to techno yeah. technology, but we also need to make a place for it. Absolutely. Otherwise yeah. our analyses aren't going to make sense. You yeah, know? yeah. So. No, I mean, that's, yeah. I So Friedrich Hitler is like a huge thinker in this in the in this space and he's like really hard like media determinist um and i think he's important but a lot of the thinking around it is like he basically hypothesizes that the only way that the unconscious was discovered was because we invented the typewriter which and seems it, a bit which seems a lot right <laughs> yeah, yeah it was yeah, like yeah. jump and the 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 argument is relatively convincing if heavily sort of like theoretical and kind of confusing or very confusing um but yeah i think just focusing one or the other is is yeah it's not particularly academically sound um and yeah you got it got to do both but sometimes you just got to focus on one end and let other people do the cycle yeah, yeah exactly yeah, 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 yeah. yeah yeah so um i think that might uh uh bring me towards another one of my questions mm. here so um we've talked about like the relationship between politics and technology but the thing that we're leaving out at the moment is um the role of the psyche here so, yeah so obviously when we use technologies they have a certain effect on us psychologically yeah and they appeal to us as well because of the ways our psyches work maybe and yeah the same goes for politics so po politics and social events affect us in particular ways psychologically but they're also the consequences of psychic yeah. processes in some way too so um as uh, listeners will find out as we go through the podcast, so my, my thinking about fascism and maybe far-right movements today is that they emerge in part as a reaction against the fragmentation of the self. Um, and you know, to put this in slightly more technical terms from people like R.D. Lang and uh, Donald Winnicott, um, fascism is kind of a political motion that allows people to reintegrate um, a self whose continuity of being has been shattered during a period of uh social crisis. So they um, mobilize a belief that structures their um, being through time and therefore restores the continuity that was lost with an appeal to something external. So an ideology like fascism with its ideas of the Thousand Year Reich and the need to expurge eight, uh, the Jews from society. Um, and yeah, so to this end, so fascism has to mobilize any number of archaic and futuristic symbols and ideas, and not necessarily brought together because of their logical connectedness, but because the network that they create symbolically um, supplies certain kind of psychic and affective benefits to the movement's followers. And by believing in this blend of ideas, um, no matter how ridiculous it is, they gain ontological security, narcissistic supply, anxiety reduction, they get targets for their paranoia and rage and so on. So in, in essence, fascism is a politics of the self and it's a fragmenting and incoherent self. And so returning to stuff like January 6th and Trumpism more broadly, the feelings of narcissistic triumph that uh, Trump's followers would have felt and the, the sense that they made something so extraordinary possible must have been an essential part of the affects felt by many on that day. And yeah, I think, I think where we're going with this is that the incoherence betrays an underlying, um, goal to some extent. Mm. And it's, it's almost perhaps not even a totally political goal in some ways, but it's, 
aims essentially at producing these feelings in these people. Um, so going back to what we said at the start, they want to feel good, proud. They want to feel afraid. They want to feel powerful and yeah. those sorts of things. And uh, politics is the instrument through which they do that. Yeah. And they're instrumentalized by people seeking that power themselves and brought into ideologies yeah. like Trumpism for that reason. So, um, and yeah, I guess, like, do you think um, we can view Trumpism and fascism and the way media technologies work in this way is that they're all circulating around these ideas of the self and its affects? Yeah, I, I think I, I, bringing it back to Toscano, something that struck me in the end of the chapter where he's sort of bringing about the, temp the temporal stuff is he writes that um, what he notices with the current, what, I mean, what he labels the kind of current um, fascist sort of swathe is that it's not so much about what he calls the sublime nation and the race to come, but to the remaindered modernity of a post-war compact, which one of the conditions of possibility was fascism, fascism's defeat. So that's just... I think that's quite that's striking because it means that the what we normally associate with like Hitler and fascism, right, is like this Aryan thing, this kind of myth of like thousand year Reich, blah blah blah. This kind of like ideal German nation, which isn't really present in fascism, but instead it's kind of it's a yearning for modernity again, the the which was produced out of the Nazis being defeated anyway, um, and that I think is indicative of the kind of both kind of symbolic and logical kind of incoherence at play in fascism in general, in generally, in general, sorry. Um, which means that, yeah, so it's not about any sort of like logic. It's not about anything that really kind of coheres. It is about affect and about mm -hmm. how you can make people like feel. Um, and it reminded me of something that I was listening to the other day, a New York Times podcast, basically was, um, was this Ezra Klein thing. He had a pollster on who does Republican work. And she said that it's been really weird polling Trump recently because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make much sense. For example, people are voting for Trump over Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis because they see Trump as the um, stable one, <laughs> which is insane because Trump is not stable. You know? It's a very stable genius. And, and she, she, she said this, these are her words. <laughs> she attributes the confusion, for want of a better word, to vibes. <laughs> to vibes. So it becomes this affect thing. I think even on the quantitative side of political analysis, people are coming around to this idea that okay, there's something unquantifiable at play now. Mm. Um, and I mean, whoever can figure out to quantify affect, it's probably a noble prize in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that's, that's, that's really interesting and quite kind of fertile ground, I think. I'm quite kind of relatively optimistic in that sense that Trump has kind of eviscerated this neoliberal idea of like a rational voting agent, mm -hmm. um, which I think opens quite a lot of ground for theorizing and i think kind of ratifies a lot of what it is that you know me you and i do and what people at birkbeck do i think mm -hmm. a lot a lot of the criticism is this kind of wishy-washy theory that has no application to real life but we go well look at the weirdness of trump yeah. right now so you there can't is, make there sense is, of that in any way really can't no um and then but on the flip side of that that's the terrifying thing about something like trumpism is that it doesn't require this kind of logic um boogly boys are an interesting case so the Boogly Boys. <laughs> Sorry, I was I was explaining this to my partner last night. And she just burst out laughing. She couldn't take it seriously. Um, very quickly, Boogly Boys are a, are a are a militia. So you can't even really name them far right, but the name Boogaloo enters online shorthand 
for any sort of like mediocre sequel. There's yeah. a sequel to a, there's a there's a film called Electrin. It's a dance film, kind of like a proto step up in the eighties. Mm-hmm. It's really good. It's quite popular. Ele- Electrin Two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> I think it's Electrin. Maybe something else. But whatever. The, yeah, the yeah, subtitle yeah. is Electric Boogaloo comes out and it's it's rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> it's so much worse than the first one. So it sort of enters the lexicon as any um, mediocre sequel referred to as Electric Boogaloo. There's a sunny episode mm-hmm. um, that, that also has it. Um, it enters online for yeah any sort of like mediocre sequel. And the particular sequel that the Boogaloo Boys want to bring about is the <laughs> Second American Civil War, <laughs> which is fun. <laughs> so you know, and, and again, there's, oh, there's so much irony there, right? Mm-hmm. Calling it a crap sequel, the American Civil War. So it's like, are you avowing or disavowing here? Mm-hmm. Even though they definitely want it, they're a serious organization. They've been involved in twice as many fatalities as the Proud Boys. Like, yeah, well, they're involved in. Uh, attempted kidnapping of Gretchen Whitmer, who was the Democrat governor of Michigan at the time. Maybe she's maybe she still is. Um, but in that sort of like post George Floyd 2020 summer of all the Black Lives Matter protests, mm-hmm. they were present at these protests, but they were both pro and anti Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Anything to throw it on the fire, basically, to sort of like pursue this nihilistic goal of kind of just complete self destruction. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of terrifying thing about them is that they're so ideologically promiscuous that they'll align themselves to any sort of side that they think is going to further their as i said just completely kind of anarchist nihilistic goal of just a complete sort of because you call it kind of self-immolation so relating it back to these ideas of kind of like narcissism and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and it's kind of affects of the self i think you see that pretty overtly with boogly boys and kind of fascism in general um Deleuze and Guattari write about the war machine and the state apparatus and how the two things are different. You see it when, like, there's a military coup, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the state and the war machine are two different things. And they locate those logics in, because they're, you know, micro, micro, in individuals too. And they argue that fascism, rather than being, again, like an over ideological thing, um, is a, an, an out of control war machine that doesn't have a war to fight and becomes internal and becomes a line of destruction that would quote rather annihilate its own servants than stop the destruction end quote. So I think yeah, that's really good. Yeah, those kind of affects of the self are also quite internal and self destructive at the same time. And if you want to understand fascism, you have to kind of move away from any political logic, any symbolic logic, and towards focusing what what direction the affect is facing. What the product, how that affect is becoming kind of destructive, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, there's such an immense amount to talk mm. about there. And I think I'm going to focus on that last bit yeah. there. But um, one of the points that I'm sort of making in this uh, podcast and in my writing and stuff is that fascism is tied up with suicidality yeah. fundamentally, yeah. and that the crisis inspires sort of a level of psychotic anxiety that gestures towards the disintegration of the self. And one response to the disintegration of the self is to seize control and to do it yourself, to commit suicide, right? So, and my argument is that like once suicidality emerges psychically, we end up defending against Mm. it. And there's a splitting that occurs between the suicidality that aims to destroy the self and the, the narcissism that aims to preserve and perfect it. And there's this split that then emerges between the aggressive, violent, hateful, um, you know, vibes yeah. That yeah, yeah, yeah. and the desire for perfection. And the two of them aren't integrated very yeah. effectively at all um, until they come forward in moments of violence where you're extinguishing the enemy yeah. and attaining pride by, you know, you know, for the Nazis exterminating the Jews yeah. 
and dealing with the threat at the same yeah. time. So, and yeah, so it's a disavowed suicidality that works in service of a narcissism mm. that was there as a response to the suicidality itself. Yeah, that was beautiful, so, man. That's, yeah. that's, that was great, yeah. yeah so, no, yeah. no, that's exactly what I was trying to yeah. get. I just put it in a much. There's this great uh, quote from Hitler. Um, I forget. <laughs> yeah, 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 I love yeah, yeah, yeah. Hitler quote. Yeah. Time for our favorite Hitler quotes. <laughs> that, that was ironic. <laughs> um, yeah, there's this uh, Hitler quote. I can't remember he, who he's talking to, but um, he basically says something along the lines of, um, once the party's over, it's not mm. the celebration with the Nazi party, it's defeated yeah. in the war. Yeah. I'll, end it, I'll end it all in five minutes with a pistol. And yeah. so, yeah, for, for wow. some people, they would interpret that as that... Um, you know, Hitler's killing himself uh, because he's afraid of punishment. Yeah, or yeah. other people might say that, um, you know, he's killing himself because he has nothing left to live for. But yeah. my opinion is that the party is the narcissism that comes to stop the suicidality yeah, that um, he felt. So the party's the a response. Barrier, it's yeah. the barrier. So yeah. once it goes, kills himself yeah. because that's what he wanted the whole time. That's fascinating. I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I would read it. Or like, you know, I've completed my life's mission of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, like yeah. They, they aim at these things like the thousand year right, but what yeah. they actually want is immediate self-annihilation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's a total... If we're talking about in terms of temporality, there's the the vanishing into the nothingness, mm, the mm. nowhere and no place yeah. of death and Heidegger. No, that's, yeah. That well, the Thousand Year Reich comes yeah. as a response to. So, that's yeah. Yeah, lastly, just to wrap up our discussion, I wanted to ask you, and I think I'll ask this of most people that come on here to see what perspectives emerge, but, um, yeah, what might a non-fascist politics look like from your perspective? Um, yeah, what do you think people concerned about the rise of fascism today should do and maybe how can we even help those who are seduced by it? Um, so starting with the helping people that have been seduced by it, I think it's about it's about it's about understanding what you know why. Mm-hmm. Um, for all our talk of affect, which is completely true, there are real political situations that lead to fascism. The time for fascism is you know still an important consideration. Um, and those, yeah, those the effects are, don't come without the crisis, exactly, right? right? Yeah. yeah. If if people are people are sort of like already angry at <clears throat> the world around them, it's very easy to kind of funnel that anger. Mm. It's a, it's not it's maybe not the best example, but Rob Topinka ran a bunch of workshops earlier in the year. He brought in kind of community leaders who do a lot of anti-racist stuff, and it was um, built around a report he'd written about Andrew Tate and about the rise of Tate and how like the algorithm had kind of like produced that and his, his conclusion, which is because uh, number one to is really good because he straddles like quantitative and qualitative really well. Mm-hmm. Um, he does a lot of stuff with the actual like statistical. Oh, great. Yeah. Like, yeah no, that's he's really useful in that way. Um, this feels like a bit like a Topinka fan show now, but <laughs> like, <laughs> woo, Rob, thank you, Rob. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, he, he, he does the really cool stuff with that. And he basically concluded that, um, what other re- the kind of reverse othering of people that are in, t- in these spaces does it, it just kind of ratifies their position because mm-hmm. the whole conspiracy theory thing of like they want to put us down and like silence us because we're speaking the truth it just feeds into that narrative yeah when you shame them it just exactly. like redoubles their commitment yeah, yeah. Um, and like luckily we live in a time unlike kind of Nazi Germany where you know you're, you're, there, there, there is plurality of thought and you are if you you just got to make the effort to kind of reach out to these people, understand them um, to an extent. I think try and kind of speak their language 
um, a lot of the stuff with the alt-right actually is that they, they're almost critical theoreticians to an extent because there is this distrust of a certain ruling class. Um, there is an awareness that the system is rigged, but it's like they're so close and then they go, and it's the juice. No. I remember listening to a Red Scare podcast with Steve yeah. Bannon and like yeah. for the first 45 minutes, he said almost nothing I disagree yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, then came the like pro-capitalism exactly. bullshit and exactly. stuff. And I was like, yeah, I, I yeah. really get that sense yeah. from a lot of them too. Um, it's like, it's following them up to that kind of quite significant, well, the the that kind of moment of the crossroads and trying to bring them back towards, you know, more ideas of equity and kind of communitarian mm. um, support and community and this kind of thing. Um, what in terms of what does a non-fascism look to me? I, I feel like I'm, this might be a bit too strictly Deleuzean, but I'm kind of married to it at this point. <laughs> is that if fascism is um, an effectual line of destruction, then a non-fascism is a line of flight. What mm-hmm. I mean by that is kind of like tolerance and um, making connections that might not necessarily be so overt and trying to draw things together in a more equitable and non-individualistic way. Mm-hmm. I think that ultimately, you know, fascism is about the, it's, it is about the self. Mm-hmm. And it's about kind of expanding the self in a sort of... I suppose a kind of quasi-spiritual thing of, you and know... Goebbels um, equated Nazism with Expressionism. Yeah, point. really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of points. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so wow, exactly. Yeah, now, yeah. So, yeah. No, I guess, yeah, it's that kind of, it's that kind of thing of, you know, it's really wishy-washy, but yeah, trying to effectively bring people together and understand that the things that are pushing them towards fascism affect everyone. Mm-hmm. And that if you want to um, fix the problem the solution is not um effective what what is in effect more of the same <laughs> yes yeah. yeah i mean that's probably not i don't really have like a project for a non-fascism no, of course but, yeah um, sort of very like a delusian sort of yeah. deterritorialized exactly, instead yeah. of yeah re-territorialized yeah. yeah exactly um and i think it's don't just don't 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 fall into the 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 trap of um yeah shaming them because it just it just reinforces their position mm. um in, in understand you know there's that there's that I forgot his name but there's um there's an African American dude who goes around trying to like read to to fix KKK people basically and he's mm-hmm. very sort of good at his job but the 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 problem with the with de-radicalization though is that it takes so long mm. and the speed of radicalization is so much quicker yes yeah that for every person you can bring out of that way of thinking you also um you know about 10 others probably more are going in um which is a bit of a worry i think the any sort of like left-wing politics needs to understand how to leverage this type of um dynamic that Trump leverages as well. I think you've got to fight him on that battleground. Mm. Um, and you've got to give up on trying to fight him empirically because <laughs> you're just not going to win because it's not about empiricism. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's changing the actual political situation that's leading people towards that way of thinking, but mm. also um, trying to get that consensual support to make those political changes in the first place, which is in the kind of arena of social media, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think something insane, I think like 30% of 
adults in the US now like get their news from like TikTok or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is insane, and you got to fight them on that. Yeah, you know? yeah. So the technology is a big part of it for you as yeah, well as yeah, all these is. other things. Yeah, 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 it really is. That's great. Yeah, like I, th I think um, our perspectives might unite a little bit on this because um, something I think is vital to a properly anti-fascist politics is to. Um, discover what there is of the other that exists beyond our fantasies of yeah. them. So, um, the example in fascism would be, you know, they paint, you know, the racial other as some sort of disintegrating threat when they're yeah. not. And you have to discover yeah. that they aren't what you believe they are. Yeah. Which is what empathy is, in it my is, opinion. Yeah, it's the failure sure. of our fantasies yeah. about the other revealed to us yeah. and revealing the understanding that one, they are themselves in a way that we can't. Mm. Um, constructing fantasy and we can't know them fully exactly. as well. And, no, you're completely right. Yeah, and so yeah, I think that's why stuff like shame doesn't work. No. Because um, yeah, it only redoubles their commitment to those fantasies yeah. and yeah, seeing them I think is probably something that might be quite profoundly painful yeah. for them but it's also something necessary. And yes. it's why, you know, like if you just look at polling data in sort of big diverse cities in the States they don't swing towards Trump because mm. they're around this this the other other people from different walks of life um and they can see a fancy projection for what it is it just completely mm. dissolves whereas in a more rural area when all you're getting is this information about this kind of perceived other mediated through social media the fancy just builds and builds and builds and that mm -hmm. just becomes your yeah it becomes your kind of way of thinking yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's deterritorialized de exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 How that, work, how that works practically, I do not know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. So, yeah, thanks very Brilliant. much for coming on, Jacob. Thank you for having me. No worries. And, um, yeah, we'll talk again soon. Sweet, hopefully. yeah. That's the end of the interview. Thanks for listening. And subscribe on Spotify and Substack to hear more episodes, interviews, and read our posts.